0: Good morning, may it please the court and counsel. My
1: name is Roy Spurbeck. I'm an Assistant State Public Defender and I represent Brian Barthman. After a jury trial in St. Louis County District Court, Mr. Barthman was convicted of six sex offense charges involving his oldest daughter. The court sentenced Mr. Barthman on count one to 360 months in prison. This sentence represents a greater than double upper durational departure. On count two, the court sentenced Mr. Barthman to 360 months in prison. Uh, This sentence represents a greater than upper durational departure. For those doing the math, the aggregate sentence is 720 months. Under the truth and sentencing statute, Mr. Barthman must serve 40 years in prison before he is eligible to be released onto his lifetime supervision term.
2: Counsel, what did the district court do with the other four counts? I mean, he was convicted on those four counts, but I don't see... Any sentence or even a stay of imposition or a stay of adjudication having to do with those other counts?
1: I think the clearest answer for count three is uh, count three is a multiple acts extended period of time charge under 609.342, subdivision 1H, part three. And the court determined that the other five counts, one, two, four, five, and six, made up count three, and you couldn't sentence on it, either under 04 or 035. So that's why there's no sentence on count three. On counts four, five, and six, um, they were entered as convictions, but no sentence. If I understood uh, Judge Flurkey's sentencing memo, essentially was saying, I've given you 720 months, I'm not gonna sentence you on these.
2: So not even sentencing on the other counts and have them
1: run concurrent to the... Not even concurrent sentences, Hmm, just no sentence. That's how I understood it. It's always been a little question in the case. And,
3: counsel, does the district court have the discretion to do that?
1: Uh, No. Judges either has to either determine under 60904 that the offenses are uh, a lesser included offense or an attempt. In that case, there'd be no adjudication. Or under 035, you could determine that no sentence is warranted because of the single behavioral incident rule. Um, the name of the sca- case escapes me. It's an early 2000s case from this court, which really says, we need to know what you're doing with all the convictions.
4: Counsel, I'm sorry, it's Monday morning. Could you repeat for me on, <laughs> on uh, yeah, on count three? Mm-hmm. So you said he didn't, um, he, what did he do with that count specifically? So
1: count three is um, is, a mul- is the charges.
4: i real interested in that count because <laughs> Um, you know, under count two, I'm wondering why he can't, since Mr. Bartman was convicted of this extended abuse over a long period of time in different forms and in, in count three, mm-hmm. why that can't be used to judge um, the underlying, the behavior under counts two and even one?
1: Well, because I think what we're looking at for count three, count three is essentially encompasses all the acts and all the other counts and I think probably some other acts. Um, but those elements are specific to that charge. And when you're sentencing on count one or two, you are looking at a very discrete act. And this is the way the state very purposefully chose to charge the case. So act one is limited to what are the surrounding facts with the couch incident. Count two is very specific to what are the acts that surround the uh, sex toy incident. State did that on purpose, to I think very clearly to avoid unanimity problems. Because if they hadn't narrowed the charges or the and I'm sorry, narrowed the acts for one and two, uh, one of my arguments to the court of appeals would be we don't know what act went with which count, and there'd be unanimity problems. So I think you have. But when we look at sentencing, we are looking at what makes the that offense worse. So count one, what makes the couch incident worse. Count two is what makes the sex toy incident worse. Count three is a catch all for basically the entire case. Now the state has great advantage when the charges count three because it allows them to not have really any specified date. It allows them to really just put a lot of evidence in front of the jury and say, look at this time range, look at all these bad things. You just have to find these really two elements, one act of penetration and then other acts. So long answer to your question, but the answer is you have to look at the specific incident in count one and two, and you can't say, well, we know count one is worse because look at there's three years of things that happened. I just, we have to be focused on the act itself. what
4: case is it of ours that tells us that we just have to look at the what behaviors involved in a specific count
1: well I think um, uh, many of the real early guidelines cases uh, from the early 80s um, I think a more recent case uh, state versus Jackson which is a 2007 case um, I mean I think it's kind of just it is part of the structure of the sentencing guidelines we don't what we don't want you to do and it's also I think in Taylor versus State and that's actually a very essential part of Taylor versus State, is we need to look at what the conviction is for. We don't want to use uncharged incidents, and we don't want to use evidence that supports other charges. Um, One of the reasons for that is because you can have some, if you're using the elements of other charges, it can distort the scope of the departure because you really shouldn't be using the elements of a, another offense as a departure group.
4: But is Taylor different? Isn't that the one where the guy at the plea hearing agreed that he did another episode? He was charged with one episode of abusing a three year old. Mm-hmm. And then at the plea hearing, he said they asked him if he had done another one. And he said yes. That seems to me different than when a jury has actually convicted a person of a whole lengthy period of conduct.
1: Yeah, I think the I think the if, if what you're looking for is for the departure ground is boy, this went over a long period of time, that's supported by count three. But it, I don't know that how it makes the specific act and count two worse. It's part count two is part of count three. It's one of the acts that makes it up. You can't have count three without count two.
5: What was argued below on this subject matter? Was the argument that you could use count three to to depart on count one or two argued below?
1: No. In fact, everyone agrees that you can't, or everyone, Um, the prosecutor, defense attorney, and ultimately the judge all agree that you can't sentence on both count one and count two and also count three because I don't want to call them lessers. I mean, that's not quite perfectly what it is, but it basically would be duplicating it. Because count three, part of count three, the evidence that supports count three is the evidence that supports count one and two. So essentially, there would be, even if it wasn't strictly a Blackburger or a 60904 lesser, you'd still have concerns that you're double counting. So one of the, um, the interrogatories, the Blakely interrogatories, uh, include um, questions about uh, CB's basically cognitive functioning. The other two, and I want to hang on it because I want to get them right. The other two questions relate to to, subjected to multiple forms of penetration, subjected to multiple forms of sexual contact. That, again, is sort of implicit in what's happening in count three. Um, So to make those departure grounds their own grounds, you'd have to look at, well, was there multiple forms in the act in count one or the act in count two? There is not for count two, there is for count one. So, uh, threw me off my game a little. Um, <laughs> let me uh roll on back here. So <clears throat> Mr. Barthman is now here in this court with three, I think, related issues, and I think there is a sort of sequence that I think it makes sense to look at the issues in. The first is, how many sentences can Mr. Barthman get? So we have count one and count two are sentenced. So the first question is. Can the state carry their burden to show that these were not a product of a single behavioral incident? I think this court is probably very familiar with the single behavioral incident rule. Um, Really, it's a question of time, place, and criminal objective. But the burden is on the state. So the state needs to be able to say that these charges, count one and count two, arise out of separate behavioral incidents. What the record does not contain is any clarity about time. So when I work on these cases, when I look at them, the first place that I think you can sometimes find some clarity about the time frames is the complaint. If the complaint doesn't provide some clarity, look at the jury instructions, look at the verdict. The state really controls all of this, the prosecutor does, because the prosecutor is gonna control what's in the complaint. From there, we're going to get the jury instructions and the verdict. What we, what we have here is an, just an extremely broad time range. It's October 31st, 2012 to December 2015. The only clear date in this is the end date, because that's when CB reports and the defendant's arrested. So we know there's nothing after that. But the question is where in this large time frame that the state has given us did the offenses occur? They have identified discrete acts in count one and count two, but no discrete. And council,
3: what about, our, what can we do, or how can we use the questions as they were posed by the state, um, using another time, the next time, those sorts of language? And and the second question is, what is the standard um, of review for that particular issue? <coughs>
1: I think the place that you have to go to, because you don't have anything for a, you don't have a jury verdict finding giving us a time, the only place you can look is the trial record. So the testimony, uh, maybe an exhibit, I mean, that's where we're gonna go. So the questioning of the state, there's several points where next time, another time, that provides at least some kind of sequencing. You're gonna tell us about the next thing. It really does not bore down to when the next thing occurred though. And I think that's the, that the Court of Appeals decided the case really using those facts to say, hey, this looks like to us that state carried its burden because look at this language. I would agree that the language is talking about sequence, but it's not narrowing time frame. Now, the reason that that's important is because this court has case law that would um, take an incident that occurs over several hours, or one incident occurs at 5.30 and the next occurs at 8.30, and although there's an, three hours between them, this court has said, and Bixby, you know, that's really one thing. So that's where this becomes, I think, quite a bit harder. It's, if you look at Bixby and Herberg, the argument I can't make is, my case is like Bixby and Herberg, because here's the time frame. I can't make that argument because we don't know the time frame, But that's not Mr. Barthman's problem because and the counsel, state has the burden to What do we
3: that. do with, if anything, um, with the fact that the um, defense argued at the district court that these were separate incidents and um, argued for severance, which the court, district court denied?
1: Well, um, that is an issue that the state has raised for the first time in its brief to this court wasn't raised in the Court of Appeals, wasn't raised in the PFR, assume, assume the state hasn't waived it. This court has long held that defendants don't waive 609.035 arguments. Um, held that they don't forfeit, which actually, is different than Actually, the waiver, quote right? is, appellants <laughs> do not waive claims of multiple convictions or sentences. The state says forfeits in their brief. The case law span is actually waives. Um, You know, trial attorneys are tasked with really doing quite a bit of of, uh, (laughs) in real time arguing. So Mr. Barthman's attorney makes an argument to sever the offenses. That essentially is an application of the single behavioral incident rule. But as inconsistent as it might seem initially on a cold record, I think the question here is, well, what what advantage did Mr. Barthman get from making that argument? None, because the offenses weren't severed. Now, when you don't sever offenses, you are implicitly actually saying that they are a single incident. The severance arguments in this case and the judge's order, it is an erroneous application of this court's severance case law. I did not raise that on appeal because I couldn't win it. And I have about eight other issues of the Court of Appeals, so I left the severance one alone. But when you have this motion before, for severance and the defense attorney makes this argument, the question that I come back to you is, well, we really don't have all of the facts. We only have all the facts after the trial's done where we can figure out are the time, place, criminal objective. So a defense attorney can make this motion beforehand, do the best they can on the record they have, but that shouldn't preclude the defendant from raising the sentencing argument because we really only know all the facts afterwards. I guess the other concerning thing for me is what if the defense attorney is just wrong? Makes the argument, says, oh, these are all separate things, but isn't even in the ballpark, correct? You know, being correct. Should that really preclude the defendant from making the argument on appeal? Especially in a case like this one, where we're talking about 720 months? So
3: I what the would other- the what would the sentence be if the court the district court had sentenced on count one two four five, and six consecutively
1: um, it's hard to know because you would need to know the order in the offenses that the offenses occurred um, the sentences for four five, and six are th- with a zero criminal history score are thirty mo- six months stayed so if you were to sentence um, Again, it's complicated because are you going to do them concurrently? If you do them concurrently, you're going to drive up the defendant's criminal history score. Let's say you did four first. That's a 36-month 30 stay. You did five next. That's a 48-month stay. You do six next. I don't know off the top. I'm going to say 72. Uh, now that you have a prison commit on count six, a consecutive sentence on count one or count two is now permissive. Consecutive sentencing would not be permissive on counts four or five, though, because they are presumptively state sentences. Uh, Again, I don't know exactly.
2: Counsel, the state cites in its brief a case State versus Bakken, and it's cited seven times. And I didn't see any response in the reply brief and wanted to give you an opportunity to distinguish Bakken.
1: I don't know if you remember this, I'm Mr. Bakken's lawyer. Oh, I... Uh, that's not why I didn't respond. I don't know that Bakken really has that much application here. Um, you know, Bakken is a pictorial images possession case, if I'm remembering my own case correctly. Um, but the question in Bakken was, uh, you've, got all, you've got seven images, um, but different download dates. and um, Right, quest-
2: same location, same computer in the bedroom. Right, but the time is the different. The time was different.
1: Yeah, so here's the question, though. We knew the times in Bakken. Right, I mean, that's my memory is we knew the times. Um, here we don't know the times. So there are a couple things about Bakken that I think are important though is, and this is part of the state's argument, is well, you can't tie, you can't tie disparate times together with a broad criminal objective. I agree. I'm not trying to tie broad criminal object or disparate times together. We don't know the times. That's the, that's the problem here. And the state has the burden to show that, the, that they're not the same time. So let's assume that we, we knew the times and they were close in time. I actually think the language in Bakken and the cases that precede Bakken favor the defendant. If the offenses are close in time, in the same place, um, then what's the criminal objective? I don't understand how there can be any other criminal objective than satisfy sexual sexual gratification. I don't understand how it can be anything else in this case.
2: Well, you could you could hypothesize a case where you've got a, a bank robber who goes in and robs a bank, obviously for the desire for money, goes into the same bank the next day, robs the bank again. Mm-hmm. Um, one behavioral incident or two,
1: separated by a day.
2: Yeah, two. So. I mean, you may it, want me to
1: argue that it's one? I can.
2: <laughs> um, no, I think in most state cases. State appellate public defender, you can do that. I do that. Um, in fact, I probably would. I mean, is, is there any indication that the charged incidents occurred on the same day?
1: In this case? Yes. Um, the, I think the problem is the record isn't clear when any incident occurred. So that's why the state has to rely on the tell us about the next thing that happened. Now, there's a, there's a quote in the state's brief where it talks about, um, I think it's on page 29 or 26, where it's laying out some of the testimony, and the prosecutor says, um, you know, the defendant put his penis inside you, something like that. And then the question is, what's the next thing that he put inside you? I think it's certainly possible to read that as the next thing right then that happened. Now, the state would say, oh, and that means the next incident and which must be in some other long separated time. That's not clear. So back to the, the bank robbery example. Is it the same bank? same bank? Yeah, so you don't necessarily have a different victim?
2: Same bank, same gun, even reuse the note.
1: <laughs> reuse the note?
2: Yes. <laughs> I mean, I had two identical bank robberies, just two different days, one one right out. Our
1: environmentally friendly, green conscious bank robber is reusing his note. Um, okay, uh, I still think that 's probably two incidents
5: you know um, so your point here is that the state hasn 't met its burden. It has the burden of proving these are actually separate incidents and not as you described it and there's the record doesn 't support that beyond a reasonable doubt whatever the standard would be
1: well it's the state has it 's a preponderance standard it's not it's not I wish it was that high, but it 's a preponderance standard haven 't met their burden, and really it comes down to the 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 record Um, you know I've I've had this job for a while and I have worked on a lot of uh, cases like this Um, sometimes sometimes there is no way to tell when the incidents occur Um, that is one of the reasons we have these multi-act catch-all crimes
3: but if If we disagree with you and find that the record does support that then you lose on that issue, right?
1: If you- If
3: we find that there is enough facts in the record in the transcript- Oh, that the, the, the state has carried its burden? Yeah, so if oh, we yeah. disagree with your reading of that transcript. Yeah, sure,
1: yeah. yeah. Then he could get sentences on Council one and two because they're different behavioral incidents. Um, you know, That moves us to some of the other arguments in the case, but um, the, what I was gonna say is that we have offenses, uh, charged conduct where we really can't tell when the offenses occurred. Um, that is the reason we have that subdivision H sub-parent 3. Extended period, multiple acts. Um, that's what it's for. Um, now, I've also had cases where young uh, complainants, child victims, they they won't testify to something like, oh, on September 21st at 4 p.m. this thing happened, because that's not probably how their brain works. Will What they will say is, oh, the incident occurred, um, we all had our Halloween costumes on. It was right around Halloween. That's enough to give us a time frame, right? S- especially if the testimony for another act is, you know, tell us when it happened. Oh, you know, um, it was my cousin's birthday. We were at their farm. And then maybe another witness comes in and says, cousin's birthday is in July, and yeah, we were at the farm. So you don't need the child to be, or the witness, and I'm just saying child, child witness, to be so specific to say, oh, this is how you have to prove it. You can pick up all kinds of inferences from the record for different dates. But this record doesn't have that. So um, assuming that the court decides against Mr. Barthman on the single behavioral incident issue, that would move us into the guidelines question of, um, are these, is this offense atypical? You know, is this case worse? If the court believes, yeah, this one is worse, you know, we have the jury question, find, or the jury findings, the judge uh, has said it's, there's a cruelty and vulnerability issue. Then the question becomes, what's the scope of the departure? Are these so atypical as to be severe and aggravating? Um, if they are severe, then the, then the sentence can exceed the double uh, double the presumptive sentence, which brings in the sub-issue of, maybe it's time to reconsider how we do Evans. And the only thing I'm really asking the court to look at on that Evans issue is not discarding Evans, it's just when we talk about double the presumptive, when we use the top of the range because of changes to the sentencing guidelines, we are talking about a huge sentence. In this case, double the top almost gets you to the statutory max, very close.
3: Counsel, would you agree that this court did have an opportunity to address Evans and did not, subsequent to the changes in the sentencing guidelines?
1: In Jackson? Uh, yes, but I think one of the things, Jackson had already won his case. I mean, he wins. So when the court moves on and says, Jackson ta- wants us to address Evans, and there's a long discussion that ends with, we're not going to do anything right now. Um, what I could find is that, after Jackson, which I think two thousand and eight um, after Jackson, um, the commission never talks about it there's never at least the commission tells me they never talked about it so if the if the point was hey let's have the commission look at it, they never have, but at the end of the day, Evans is this court's rule it's not the commission and it's not the it's not the legislature it's the court's rule it's a supervisory power rule so the 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 group that can look at Evans and the group that can change Evans is this court.
2: Counsel, very quickly on your uh, 7.03 argument. Um, Why isn't a plain error standard of review appropriate here?
1: It's absolutely appropriate. Uh, Let me be real clear. I don't think this court is going to reverse Mr. Barthman's conviction based on the lack of notice for a couple reasons. Really, there's never an objection Two, when they talk about the questions, the defense attorney actually kind of modifies one of them. Here's my concern. And this is what I would really ask the court to do. I understand that that's a super hard issue to win. It would be great to get some guidance from this court for trial courts for practitioners about how they're supposed to do Rule 703. Because there's no statement of the underlying facts. Your Honor, I see my time is... Sure, yes. um, there is no statement of what the facts are going to be to support the departure questions. And the grounds cited vulnerability and cruelty are not what we ask the jury to decide. So you can imagine a defendant who sees vulnerability and cruelty and has no statement about what is going to be, what the questions are going to be. Is it a disadvantage? And the rules really require the state to do those things. Thank you.
4: Yes,
6: counsel on the uh, the departure. Um, you mentioned in your brief that, in addition to the more than double upward departure uh the trial court of course also sentenced uh consecutively, which was permissive, and so he had every authority and discretion to do that. but I got the sense from your brief and i and I just want to want you to clarify for me the fact that the court did run the sentences consecutive it seems to me adds to um uh, the the severity, if you will, of the departure, although it's not part of the departure. But when you depart and you run them, cons, you know, consecutively, it seems to me you you enhance that in in a way that obviously you otherwise wouldn't. Could you speak to that a little bit? I
1: think you're and, and
6: how we think about how we should factor that in.
1: You're absolutely <laughs> correct. I think it does end up falling into probably the third argument, which is this court's ability to review sentences for reasonableness because. If you conclude that the departure grounds are valid, if you conclude that the circumstances are severe, allowing the 360 month sentence, the consecutive sentence is permissive. It could technically be lawful, but it also is 720 months, and it is far beyond any other sentence I could find with comparable facts, especially after the 2006 guidelines came into effect. So I think it is part of the analysis for for is the sentence excessive? But it also, on the guideline side, seems to be technically lawful. Thank you.
7: Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. McGillick.
0: Good morning. May it please the court, opposing counsel. My name is Karen McGillick, and I'm hearing on behalf of the state of Minnesota this morning. The state has filed, just filed a very narrow cross appeal in this case, um, although we do agree with a great number of the Court of Appeals' conclusions in this matter. As an initial matter, with regard to the first two issues that were raised by Mr. Barthman, we believe the Court of Appeals correctly held that counts one and two arose from a single behavior or from separate. About your all-time worst misstep, right? Uh, the state agrees that they arose from separate behavioral incidents, um, and we also agree that the appellant received adequate notice of the state's intent to seek a departure. With regard to the third issue, the state also agrees with a number of the court of appeals' conclusions, including that permissive consecutive sentencing was a, was not abuse of discretion that the aggravating factors of particular vulnerability and particularly particular cruelty supported aggravated sentences, and that in this case, the aggravating circumstances were severe um, and indeed described both by the prosecutor and the Court of Appeals as So
5: horrific. can we start where Justice Hudson left off with opposing counsel? So it, permissive, in, under, the, under the sentencing guidelines, is permissive. I mean, this is a permissive consecutive sentence. But in 2F of the sentencing guidelines, they say that that's only supposed to be applied when it's severe. So you can't, you, the discretion is kind of constrained to severe cases to go from, in a permissive situation, to go from concurrent to consecutive. And then you have a double departure, which requires a compelling difference in the aggravation of the circumstances. And then, to go beyond a double departure, it has to be severe on top of that. So we have a standard that says it has to be severe and then severe and then severe. What kind of standard is that? I mean, how do we even talk about that? And how do we determine when a, when a, when a case is severe and then severe and then even more severe?
0: My understanding of this court's rule is that when severe aggravating circumstances exist, that is when we get beyond the doubling rule in Evanston. And as long as the district court or the trial court correctly concluded that the aggravating factors are severe, at that point you're not. But the sentencing guidelines, to
5: begin with, time. to get to permissive consecutive, the sentencing guidelines themselves say this has to be a severe case. Cor-
0: correct. And okay, and so,
5: so case, that's the first place we go because it went consecutive, and then the court said, okay, it's consecutive, but then we're gonna aggra- We're gonna make it even more severe, and to get to up to double departure, it has to be, I mean, to get to any departure, any upper departure, it has to be a compelling, problematic situation that's very different, that's more aggravated than the typical case, and that would allow you to depart, and then to depart beyond a double departure, it has to be even more severe on top of that. So we have multiple levels of this is even more severe than the typical case, and so, how do i i just don't that seems like a standard that's not a standard at all and that seems problematic to me
0: my understanding is that it is permissive when there are two counts of criminal sexual conduct that do not arise from the same incident, it is permissive and not a departure to impose consecutive. It's
5: not a departure, but the sentencing guidelines say it has to be severe to be able to do that, to act, to effectuate that permissiveness.
0: Right. But in terms of when we're talking about the departure above a double for the severe aggravating factors, I believe that's somewhat of a different analysis. I mean, certainly if you're imposing consecutive sentences, there's a reason that the case is severe enough to warrant that, but when we're looking at the severe aggravating circumstances to support going above the, deb- the doubling rule in Evans, then we're saying that at that point this court's rule has been the only limit, the only absolute limit is the statutory maximum. which And, and how
5: do we know that it's like this, multi- this high level of severity that's more than the severity for departure, more than the severity you need to go from concurrent to consecutive in a permissive context? What does that look like? How do we ever know that?
0: I, you know, I don't know if I have a great answer for that, other than to say if, if, the, if, you can per, if it's permissive in a severe case to have um, consecutive sentences, at the end of the day, what we're looking at is, the, is there an abuse of discretion? And did the trial court leave the court with, with this firm understanding that there is such an, a gross exaggeration of the criminality of the defendant's conduct, and that it's so disproportionate that it requires this court to interfere with that district court's discretion and to correct the sentence? And is the I, discretion, I that I, is the I, I'm, standard.
5: I'm also interested in the, in the discretion because typically trial courts have discretion, but do the sentencing guidelines kind of change the fact that we have the legislature passing sentencing guidelines that set rules for sentencing? Does that make us think about the abuse of discretion standard differently in a sentencing case? Because the legislature has already said, we're going to constrain the district court's <laughs> discretion in sentencing.
0: I mean, absolutely, the purpose of the sentencing guidelines was for there to be some consistency among sentencing. I I will certainly concede that. However, the sentencing guideline sentences, the presumptive range, is for the sort of typical case, which is a hard thing to say when we're talking about criminal sexual conduct. But in this case, we are talking about anything but a typical case. We are talking about a horrific case involving a level of vulnerability. The reason it is so difficult to find a case in Minnesota with a similarly situated defendant is because there just haven't been a lot of cases or hardly any I can find where a, a young victim has been brutalized by her father in this way and who has such a very significant level of vulnerability that it is a severe aggravating factor that makes this case. can you different. talk
7: a little bit about about what the record shows about the, the victim's vulnerability um, because it, it, I mean she testified at the trial,
0: mm-hmm.
7: she goes to school. I, I just wonder, I mean, we have to find that the vulnerability was to use justice i mean it's s- severe so so what does the record tell us that would help us wade through that?
0: certainly, so CB in this case has a, a significant disability she does attend school but the, the record was very clear in fact the state spent a significant amount of time establishing that she has an IEP in place um, and that she presents at you know her biological age but she actually functions at a far lower age so although by trial she was 13 she presented in the district court made findings to this effect too as a, ver- a much younger child she actually was in the one percentile for adaptive abilities and behavior. And some of her disability, when we talk about, I know the argument that Mr. Barthman makes about the time, for example, and her not being able to pinpoint time, that was one of the most significant pieces of her disability is she had incredible challenges with both speech and communication and her ability to sequence information. That was something that she was unable to do and Mr. Barthman knew that. Mm -hmm. So he was able to pick a victim who couldn't testify against him on the specifics. And he groomed her from such a young age um, by engaging her in this conduct, by getting her mother to be involved in this conduct, who her mother suffers from the exact same disability as her. You know, here's a man in a house with a woman whose wife is is disabled and a vulnerable adult herself, and then his children are the same, and he's now perpetrating sexual abuse along with physical violence and neglect in a household where he can openly sexually abuse his daughter on the sofa, and there's nothing that his wife or anyone else is going to do about it. She can't articulate to people. At the time she disclosed this, She was, I believe, 12 years old and unable to even identify her body parts by name. So we're talking about a girl who's so vulnerable because she can't sequence information, she can't talk, she can't do the things that normal girls of her age can do. And that's why the district court found in this case that this was such a severe vulnerability that made this case atypical. And that's going back to your question about the guidelines. The guidelines set up a first degree crim sex conviction with a range of the 144 to 172 based on a tip case there's nothing let me, let me counsel
8: let me talk a little bit about let's talk a little bit about the time issue here mm-hmm. um am i correct that there's nothing in the record where um this victim or or the mother of the victim or anyone else says something to the effect these events occurred on separate days or separate parts of days there's there are no time references at all am i right about that
0: That's correct. Again, he he chose a victim who had a difficult time.
8: I I understand all of that, but what I'm trying to get at is whether we can find anything in the record that supports other than these references to and then what occurred next, the actual timing. And if there isn't, independent of whether or not he set this up or, or however that occurred, what do we do with that fact?
0: There is absolutely evidence in the record to support the state's burden under the preponderance standard to show that it's more likely than not that they were separate. And the, the most compelling is the forensic interview testimony that, that CB gave. And that is one of, despite her disability, the one incident, the couch incident, what we're calling it, which was count one. And, counsel, her
3: testimony was not contradicted, right?
0: No, it was not. Uh, when she disclosed this, this was her disclosure in December. She was able to take dolls and walk the forensic interview through the couch incident from start to finish. She was able to articulate and demonstrate sort of with gestures and the dolls how the incident began with her father. They were on the couch. They were watching a movie. He pushed her onto the sofa. She explained how he put his penis inside of her forcefully, um, how he engaged in oral penetration with her after that. She demonstrated that with the dolls, and then she concluded her description of that particular event now at the time of her forensic interview in december cb had never even disclosed the vibrator incident in fact in that entire interview transcript or the tape which i i hope this court can see the tape because it makes it a lot more clear what her struggles were Um, but she doesn't disclose this vibrator incident at all. Now that was in December, then in January is when she disclosed the abuse involving her mother being part of the abuse, and then it isn't until February that she also mentions to a separate therapist that yes, there had been times when he'd used a sex toy as well. So I think you have to take into account with the standard of proof that the state has, that it's more likely than not, and coupled with her testimony at trial where she is being walked through. And again, this is based on her disability. The prosecutor was doing the best she could to walk her through different sequences. I mean, this girl was abused numerous times, more times than we even know over a three-year period. And Count- she's a child with problems with sequencing. I, if we can, I,
6: I want to go back to the, the sentencing. Um, a couple of things concern me, and, and they've been alluded to here uh, in, in part by Justice Thiessen. But... You know, if the trial court had had even um, used the top of the box, if he had gone to 172 um, and doubled that, that would bring you to 344, 344 months. Well, the statutory maximum is only 360. So I, I guess what I'm having trouble is why that doesn't account for the, the severity of the conduct here and the vulnerability. I mean, you would be almost at the top, at the, at the sentencing, uh, the statutory limit for the sentence, if you doubled from the top of the box.
3: Counselors, right. the statutory limit is without aggravating factors.
0: Correct. I, I mean, right, but once, so the doubling rule, once you have severe aggravating factors, I mean, the aggravating factors of vulnerability are there, or perhaps the cruelty, those can be there, and you can go to the double rule if you want, but once you have severe aggravating factors, and in this case a horrific situation that was far more severe than Judge Florky had encountered, then you aren't limited to the double rule anymore, and you're certainly not limited to the top okay. of the box under the present that, guidelines. that's
6: helpful. I, I appreciate that clarification. The, the, the other thing that I was curious about, and I, I want you to tell me if the Court of Appeals had this right, but I noticed in the Court of Appeals' opinion. Um, they say, and this is on the very last page of the opinion, at sentencing, the state recommended the statutory maximum of 360 months on count one and a consecutive 240-month sentence on count two for a total of 600 months or 50 years. Okay. So the judge went beyond what the state was even requesting at that time. So is that correct, is my first that thing?
0: Is, that is absolutely correct. And so not- that's
6: what the state thought was proper then
0: correct that is what the state had recommended there was if you read the state sentencing memorandum you know there were different ways that the state was looking cuz remember these there's three counts of first degree and there's three counts of second degree and the three counts of second degree are not lesser included um we're talking those were very separate the the you know the incidents with the mother and things that were separate acts that could have been separately can um, charged or were separately convicted and could have been sentenced separately as
6: okay. well
0: Here. so the only one that overlapped was 3 um, you know, at that point, the state did say this is what, you know, we're recommending, but the judge was, is the one ultimately. with Right,
6: the ultimate. understand. I understand that. Here's yeah. my, my last, and this is just kind of a broad question. I mean, you know, I, I spent eight years at the Attorney General's office doing essentially what you, do, what you do, what you're doing right now. And then another 13 years on the Court of Appeals and now four some years here. And I'm kind of in the boat where Mr. Spurbrook is. I can't remember. Um, seeing a sentence that um, has been departed in in this way. I just can't can't remember one. And I'm trying to figure out why, why that is.
3: Council, can I clarify on that question? Am I correct to say that the the cases that um, everyone is speaking of that they haven't seen is the cases that have been appealed? but it doesn't cover all of the cases that have not been appealed in the district courts across the state. Am I right?
0: Certainly, and I think that where we see a difference is that you know, pre-sentencing guidelines changes. There were plenty of cases where people with this type of conduct, and they're cited in my brief, would get a quadruple departure, would get a three times departure, would get... Definitely much more enhanced than a 2.09 departure, which is what was happened here. It's just that at that point, the well, depending
6: on where you take the where you start from, exactly. it's a 2.09 if you start at the presumptive, but it's not if you start up at the top of the box.
0: Right. right. My my point is, there are cases, though, where severe aggravating factors in criminal sexual conduct cases have warranted a greater than double departure, and those have been upheld by this court. It's just the overall time might not be as long as 720 months, based on the fact that the guidelines were a different number then. Now, Hanson is the one that I cited in my brief, where the person did get two first-degree crim sex convictions based on two sexual acts with a vulnerable adult. But there is
6: a mandatory minimum there, though, right?
0: Well, right, and again, I mean, oh, it's, it's makes hard to difference. find a case that It makes like a big this. difference.
5: So can I, so with the maximum sentence, the 360 mm-hmm. max, if you have, under, so under the guidelines for first-degree criminal sexual conduct, if you have six or more prior offenses, you, the range is 306 to 360 months. And even if there were aggravating circumstances, you couldn't go beyond 360 months in that circumstance, right?
0: I believe that's correct.
5: Because of the statutory max. So, the statutory maximum, and when we're looking at that number, I mean, we're looking at cases where there's six prior incidents, prior criminal history felony points, and you still can't get beyond 360 months.
0: Right, correct. So, that would that be a comparable maximum.
5: case, too, like a situation where? someone has committed five prior felonies and then they're convicted of a criminal sexual conduct? I mean, that would be a comparable case, right, to whether 360 is appropriate?
0: Potentially, depending on the facts. Again, I mean, if, if those cases involve, and I hate to use the term more standard or more typical, crim sex versus a severe aggravating situation, I don't know, but potentially, depending on the facts, yes.
5: But they'd be, they couldn't depart there because you, 360 is as far as the legislature will allow them to go.
0: Right, and, and he was, you know, he was imposed two consecutive sentences at the statutory max here. And again, the Court of Appeals analysis is, we agree with most of it. We agree the permissive consecutive sentence. We agree that these are severe aggravating factors. The Court of Appeals concluded and affirmed the 360 months on count one based on these severe aggravating factors. Counsel, can I ask you about count two? Um, on count two, It looks, the
3: Court of Appeals found, again, that the cruelty and the vulnerability apply.
0: Do you agree with that analysis? So the Court of Appeals concluded that vulnerability would apply to both counts, and we would certainly agree with that. Um, And both the Court of Appeals and the trial court agreed that there was particular cruelty with regard to count one because of the multiple, again, it's not just the multiple acts over time. Count one had two forms of penetration. That makes count one atypical, and this court has held many times that multiple forms of penetration in a single act aggravate and make it a more extreme case. So in that case we do, there are not, there's not evidence of multiple forms of penetration with regard to count two, so that cruelty factor would arguably not apply to two, but the vulnerability factor does apply to two and it only requires, you only have to have one aggravating factor and it has to be a very severe one in order to warrant an upward departure. So in this case, there's two severe aggravating factors for count one. There's one aggravating factor which alone is enough to support a departure on count two. Um, But that's what the Court of Appeals finds. They find that the departure is appropriate on both counts. They find that it's okay to go up to double. I mean, so they're up to the double math rule. But the Court of Appeals didn't find any error in Judge Flerkey's reasoning. There was never a conclusion that he applied the aggravating factors incorrectly they never the court of appeals did not find that judge Flurkey. well in, i think what they're
6: reacting to is the fact that in their collective collegial experience and i noticed the author is judge kirk a long time district court judge um this was excessive this exaggerated the crimin- the, the criminality of the conduct that's 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 what i get out of the court of appeal that's what they're reacting to
0: I, I would certainly agree with that. That was definitely their reasoning, and that is a tough standard. I mean, this collective experience is difficult when there's been, you know, we don't have all cases aren't appealed, we don't know the facts of some. I think where the For reasoning- counsel, isn't that
3: why we give discretion to the district court who actually is listening to the evidence in real time? I mean, it's very different to do a cold read of what this CB said or testified to, rather than in the courtroom watching her and watching all the cues and everything that happens in the courtroom at the time would you agree with that
0: absolutely and you know judge Florky has a reputation too for i mean he's been on the bench a long time has a reputation for being a very compassionate judge i you know i don't believe he took this decision lightly when he imposed this sentence counsel what's the best case what's
7: the best case for the state's position here
0: i believe hansen and Pearlberg. Are the two best, but I think if you look at the reasoning under some of the Court of Appeals cases like Suhan and Seagrass, there's also certainly support for the fact that this is um, the type of case that involves very horrific conduct. And again, the fact that we can't cite to a case that involves a man who does this to his developmentally delayed de- daughter and this is what his sentence is is because there haven't been cases like that. This case is what more do you extreme. make of
5: these, uh, the state or the, the, def- the appellants? Ref, uh, reference citation to the sentencing guidelines analysis of the la- of 10 years of criminal sexual conduct cases
0: i'm i'm sorry I did, i'm i not sure i understood.
5: in their brief they run they cite to a report that the, the sentencing guidelines commission did analyzing departures under crim sex one cases if i'm not mistaken uh none of which get to the level of sentence that was imposed in this case so that's looking back over 10 years of cases and none of them reached this, the result that was reached in this case. What do you make of that?
0: So twofold. One, the difficult with that kind of data is we just don't know the facts of those cases. So we don't have the detail of the facts. And like I said, there have been plenty of cases where there have been four or five time departures when the le- guidelines were you know, lower amounts. Right, but still representing the fact that when those severe aggravating factors were there, the court felt it was important to- But
5: didn't the guidelines on. change the court's discretion about that? I mean, wasn't that the point of the guidelines?
0: No, I mean, the the rules still apply under these court's created rules that, you know, when there are severe aggravating factors, we're above the, once there's aggravating factors, we're above the presumptive box. And then when they're severe, we're even above, we can be above the double as long as it doesn't exceed the maximum. Now, again, this collective experience about it exaggerating, the Court of Appeals remanded for a difference of 16 months. I mean, so the if, assuming that Judge Flerke would again conclude there's, exa- you know, these were severe aggravating factors and would impose a sentence at the double the top of the box, we're talking about the difference between a 704 month sentence and a 720. So, you know, the reasoning there is confusing. If and he could actually sentence on the remaining
3: counts that, there, that were found guilty on.
0: In theory, I think everything but count three would be, he could be sentenced on that. I mean, in this case, the judge made a very specific finding that to only sentence on count three would be a disservice because it would not We would not take into account the severity. Can
5: we rely on sentences that weren't imposed by the district court in making our analysis?
0: I don't believe so. I think we're limited to, did the district court abuse its discretion? District courts are in a very unique position. This court has recognized that over and over again. And there has to be a clear abuse of discretion. There has to be something that the court has done wrong for an appellate court to step in and say that you should be reversed and remanded. And in this
4: case, I agree. Uh, Although I'm going to cut in there because Mr. Spurbeck told us actually it could be technically right, but the appellate court could step in 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 its collective wisdom if it thought it was just too excessive.
0: Certainly. And I think that is sort of the catch all of if if it's an abuse of discretion, if it's, you know, if the collective experience is as it is, but what the court of appeals relied on was an unpublished case that was completely factually different. It involved the imposition of one sentence and no aggravating factors, so not severe and not any. There were, It was literally a presumptive sentence because there were no aggravating factors. It was a, a girl that was abused by her father but cognitively Normal. I I know that's not really the PC term anymore, but certainly not somebody with disabilities. And the sentence was not appealed in Guzman Diaz. In fact, I worked on that appeal, so I'm familiar with it maybe more, but I'm troubled by the fact that they're relying on an unpublished opinion because we've been told don't rely on unpublished opinions because you don't have all the facts. Um, But in addition to that, the unpublished case they chose it's not the same it's not even a departure case and it wasn't one where the sentence was being appealed. So it just to me, if we're going to look at collective experience to say that it's excessive, to reduce the sentence by 16 months to say, well, 16 months more is so excessive and it's not based on the evidence, but reduce it by 16 months and it's okay. There's no error found. The Court of Appeals did not find that the court applied the factors wrong. They didn't disagree with the fact that they were severe. And there was no basis to conclude that they're severe based on her vulnerability, especially, which Judge Flurkey was very clear. Vulnerability alone would be enough for both of those sentences. So if it's severe enough on count one, and that same severe aggravating factor exists on count two, it's flawed to say that, well, a 360 month is fine on count one and we affirm the conviction and the departure on count two. We just want to reduce it a little. There, didn't, there was no error found in the trial court's reasoning that warrants interfering Council, with that discussion.
6: How, would you, how do you, would you recommend we think about the consecutive sentencing here right, as well? And how does that fit into the mix? Does it go to just reasonableness, as Mr. Sperbick told us? Um, what's your thought on that?
0: I'm about to expire my time. Is it okay? Okay. You know, when we're looking at consecutive permissive sentences, it's ultimately a clear abuse of discretion standard, and it's ultimately does it unfairly exaggerate the criminality of the defendant's conduct compared to similarly situated offenders. Now I've told this court it's our position that there really has not been a similarly situated offender, at least in a case that's been published that I can find. Hansen is the closest one because he also sexually abused someone with similar vulnerabilities to CB. That woman was a vulnerable adult and it only occurred twice. He did two separate, count, two separate times, that was it. He was sentenced to 30 years on each count and it was upheld. I understand that the statute was different, but still he received a 60 year sentence for two. This case could have been sentenced differently based on counts four and five and six, but he received two very stern sentences for very egregious conduct event against a very vulnerable child. And there has been no error in the district court or any clear abuse of discretion that would warrant interfering with the court's order. Thank you, counsel.
7: Thank Mr. you. Mr. Spurbeck, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal.
6: Mr. Spurbeck, how do we factor in the prosecutor's point uh, in answer to me that, well, the top of the box, represents the sentence without severe aggravating factors. And so given the finding of severe factors, aggravating factors, it isn't unreasonable to go beyond that. Well,
1: (coughs) excuse me. The top of the box, 172, is not a departure under the guidelines. So that's a sentence for what we would consider the typical offense. To go beyond 172, you would need aggravating factors. To go beyond 344, Excuse my math, but three hundred and forty-four. They need to be severe. Um, my concern always with the, this doubling at the top and the sentence here is, with the, the, Mr. Barthman has zero criminal history points, yet you know under the guidelines, all of a sudden we're almost at the statutory maximum with the Evans doubling rule. So you know I, I don't disagree with how we're talking about this. Of there's a presumptive sentence, there's a range departure grounds above the range, greater than double, severe. That's the the case law. Um, I think the the question here, and this kind of comes back around to the CB is, I think 12 or 13 when she reports the abuse. Um, And the cognitive age would put her much lower because of the chromosomal uh, deficit she has. Let's say that she's six, like that's the, that's the age she's functioning at. Well, this is just to make the victim six years old. Of course they're vulnerable, they're six. That is built into the statute and it's built into the guidelines. <laughs> Cases where the children are victims are, do are terrible.
3: A, do you have a case that supports that theory? That's Taylor. That says, the vulnerability if you have a child who is 12 but functions at
1: the level of a six-year-old? Victim in Taylor is three and a half, and the court says that's not atypical.
3: But because, because of the context of that case, it's not, that's not the same as saying that you have a 12-year-old who is functioning at the level of a five- or six-year-old. Yeah, I, I don't think, think I, you can put them both side by side. Yeah,
1: I don't know that they're side by side. I'm responding to the state's argument that well, where the child was as far as cognitively. If the, if the child was six and had a, the cognitive ability of a six year old, I would say the child is still vulnerable. But that's factored into what we already have for a statute and we already have for the presumptive sentence. The state's argument in response to Chief Justice Gilday's question of, well, what's your best case? Well, let's talk Pearl, Pearlberg and Suhan. Pearlberg's sentence for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acts of abuse is 432 months. Suins for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acts of sexual abuse is 278. There are unpublished opinions, there are published opinions. I can only really work with what I have. And if we're going to examine the, the sentences and compare them to other sentences, we have to use what we have. So those might per- be published in the un-
2: Perlberg is a court of appeals decision and it is published.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Well, and one of the reasons I went to try to find everything I could. I got what I could from the commission, and I gave it to you in the addendum to the brief. There are 900, 900 cases starting in 2006. Very small number with durational upward departures, very small number that involve a consecutive sentence. I gave you all the facts I could with those cases. That's what you're reviewing. But I think one of the points is, well, not everything is appealed and not the court doesn't have all the information, that's why I gave you the guidelines information. But we often don't see an appeal, we're not gonna see an appeal in all 900 of those cases because a guilty plea with a downward departure isn't probably gonna get appealed by the defendant. Chief Justice Gilday, do you have I a just question?
7: wanted uh, your response to the state's reliance on State versus Hanson.
1: Yeah, I understand it. I actually think that, at least numerically, that's kind of the closest. Um, there are a couple things about Hanson that I think cut away from its usefulness here, though. One is the sentences in Hanson Involve true mandatory minimum 30-year sentences. There's no there's no analysis in that, in those, in that situation of scope of departure. Um, the opinion itself in Hansen on the front end of the opinion seems to is going to examine the consecutive nature of the sentences, but then really doesn't. So I think there's a limited utility. Um, the other thing about Hansen is Hansen, prior to those offenses, has a prior sex offense, which is what's triggering. I think some of the mandatory sentencing in that case.
8: Council, let's talk about uh, the position of the state relative to the um, consecutive sentences and the timing of these incidents and counsel for the state points to the forensic interview and suggests that we can draw some support for the argument that these are separate incidents. How how do you respond to that?
1: (laughs) There's just not enough detail in any of the, in any individual statement about any individual act to know what's really connected to anything else. I agree that the disclosures are at different times and um, the first disclosure to, I'm gonna call it Corner House, I know it's not called that in Duluth, but the first disclosure to Corner House doesn't involve the sex toy and that comes at a different disclosure. That doesn't mean that those aren't close in time. And if the part of, I feel like there's a little bit of trying to, to have it both ways here. There's quite a bit of evidence and testimony from the child in this case. In fact, there's a tremendous amount. Yet at the same time, well, the child really can't, is, is too cognitively uh, undeveloped to really explain things.
8: Uh, child explains quite a bit.
1: But what we don't ever get to is specific dates tied to acts
8: i ask you the same question that I asked opposing counsel and recognizing that a child with this disability might very well be unable to point to specific days, specific or even specific months. Um, am I correct that there's nothing in the record where this child is specifically asked, is this inc- did this incident occur at a different date than this other incident? There's no, no
1: questioning like that. There's no answers like that. What the questioning, and I think this is a little bit how a corner house is going to interview somebody, to, is they are going to ask, tell me the next thing, or tell me, tell me what else happened, because they, they're trying not to be so leading. Right. That's at least, you know, and the trial prosecutor in this case is given leeway in her direct examination of CB because she's a child, but we still don't have those, those points. Um, they're just not in the record. Now, again, I would say that that is one of the reasons that we have H sub three is because we will have cases like this with children. Um, You're not gonna have an abuse against a child. That's It's gonna be a caregiver, it's gonna be a parent. That's the only way you have these extended periods of abuse. That again is built into the statute. So I guess just just um, to end here, and I think this is an important point and I haven't made it, These cases, these cases, these convictions, these sentences are driven by how the prosecutor charges the case. You did not have to charge this case this way, but the prosecutor made a decision with four or five complaints to finally get where they wanted, which was five separate counts and the catch-all. Not every prosecutor charges it like that. There's gonna be a prosecutor who just charges the catch-all. If you just charge the catch-all one count, the maximum sentence with all the departures grounds, if there, would be 360 months. Not everyone's going to do that. Some are going to break it up. Some will break up the, the periods of, here's a two-year period of extended time. Here's another two-year period. That's, I think, Pearlberg and Suhan. That's what's going, yeah, that's what's going on in those cases. Prosecutor makes the decision of, not only I'm going to charge it like this, I'm going to try to get a longer sentence with these aggravating factors. Jury comes back guilty on the crimes, guilty on the factors. Then we're gonna move over to the judge. Judge says, I'm gonna depart. Not only am I gonna depart, I'm gonna go as high as I can. Not only am I gonna go as high as I can, I'm gonna make them consecutive. All of this leads from the original decisions by the prosecutor. So when we look at a case charged in St. Louis County, a case sentenced by Judge Florkey, we are comparing it to the sentences across the rest of the state, because that is the system we have. I have no idea how fair Judge Florkey is. I don't know anything about him. But one of the things the guideline system does and this review of sentences does is it prevents the judge in any individual trial court from saying, I am so mad, this is the worst thing I've ever seen.
2: Three, Counsel, I, I appreciate your more general point, but back on what Judge Flurkey did, his sentencing memorandum s- seems to suggest that he sentenced on only two counts and that he didn't sense the sentence on the other because he was sentencing so strictly on the two counts. And he cites the Pearlberg case, which I don't think stands to the proposition you shouldn't sentence on every count. But um, let's say you're right and that there's only, the state didn't prevail on its burden to show that it was more than one behavioral incident on these two counts. What happens to the other counts
1: on remand? You can remand it. Judge Flurkey can figure out the order the offenses occurred. He can sentence. I can object based on whatever sentence he gives. I can object on the order that they're given. Um, There may still be arguments with those remaining counts of how many sentences you can actually get. Thank you. Thank you.
7: Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.